This is Write Your Own Story, Three Keys to Rise and Thrive in Life and Business. I'm your host, Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian. Hey, it's Rebecca. Some of you may not remember this, but the infamous show Seinfeld ended kind of abruptly after a wildly successful nine years. And my guest today, Nick Smorelli, has a similar kind of story. After a wildly successful career as the CEO of Goodellnet with a list of awards that we'll get into just a little bit today, he knew it was time for him to pivot, to make a change. And you know, around here, we're always talking about our inner thrive guide. And I couldn't wait to talk to Nick to find out how his inner thrive guide notified him that it was time for a change and how he's doing since he made the jump. Here we go. So, Nick, you are clearly writing your own story. So I want to get into that today. I'm glad you're here. So happy to be here. Well, I have to, my first really powerful question is, now that you are no longer a full-time Goodell Net employee, what is the person who was previously responsible for updating your LinkedIn awards doing now with their time? <laughs> I uh there was a like a wonderful little like streak. I think it was I, I man, I think it was 2020 or 2021 where it felt like for about three months it was insane. And it it normalized again. <laughs> but it did feel uh, a little surreal for a while. I pulled up your LinkedIn just to kind of peruse through and I was like, I've not yet experienced someone whose literal first page is awards. It was fabulous. Congratulations on doing amazing things as a leader. So so let's just tell the listeners a little highlight. 10 times on the Inc. 5000 fastest growing company list. 10 times. Like, that's insanity. Uh, best IT consulting company 11 times. Best places to work from uh, IBJ. Best and brightest. Uh, exceptional workplaces. 40 under 40. Congratulations. What an amazing career. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And you're just getting started because it's not like you're some old crusty getting ready to go down kind of young, exciting career and you're making a pivot. Tell tell us about this. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been kind of a whirlwind in the last 12 months has been uh, you know, the biggest change that I've, I've certainly gone through from a career perspective, only because I don't have a perfect answer of what's next. You know, I've, I've made career shifts before and I've done big leaps, but I was always leaping to a very solid next place or at least a place where I knew where I was going. And now I'm leaping and I, I have a general direction. Um, I feel like I've really had to lean into the visionary part of my profile, which is I have a vision of where I want to go and I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to get there. Um, and that feels super strange. But yeah, no, so I, I left I left my my previous position as CEO of Goodellnet um in July, passed the the torch to overall my my leaders and my managers, but the the actual CEO title uh to our former president who now became president and CEO of the organization. An individual I had the opportunity to work with for eight plus years and uh couldn't be happier for him and the team that he he gets to work with every day. 
Well, the reason I reached out to you and said, let's talk is because when I heard that you were making this leap, I love that you are being internally guided. It's it's not that you're jumping to something specific. You just had this call and and it comes in different shapes and sizes from from what I've heard you talk about on other podcasts recently with, with uh, Tiffany Souter, who's a friend of the show, that your body was telling you things. You were just getting this feeling that it was time. And we talk incessantly, I talk incessantly here about our inner thrive guide. Knows mm-hmm. what's best for us and if we have the courage to listen. And it sounds like that's what's been happening for you. Yeah. I, and I think that I think courage is a big, a big word in the whole thing is it's, it's one of those things where I encourage people to take big life leaps um, and just to do it. Sometimes I feel like the hardest thing in almost everything is just that first step. And I think for me, I was afraid of of ever taking that first step of having that first conversation or even saying the words out loud that, you know, maybe it's time for me to make a change. Um, that was that was scary because that wasn't the plan necessarily. It wasn't part of this beautiful, ideal plan that I had assembled of of what that timeline looked like. And so I, I think for me, that was incredibly scary to make that first I would say that first step was probably the hardest step of crystallizing. Is this really what makes the most sense? Even though there's not that perfect, beautiful next step. You are rattling your brain's sense of security and safety in a gigantic way by doing that because you don't know. Our brain is always trying to fill in the blanks of what comes next. And when we Mm -hmm. don't know what comes next, the uncertainty gives our brains this red alert signal that something is wrong and unsafe. And luckily as humans, we have the ability to, to create new patterns and work past that. But, but what I've heard you say on other shows is it does feel strange. It does feel kind of wrong in some ways, just every day now needing to fill your days versus your days coming at you and responding to the needs of the business and the people and the market now you're creating versus responding. Absolutely. And I think that's scary. And I think you mentioned a kind of a few things that had to get deconstructed, but I would say the biggest thing for me was an identity that I'd created for myself. I had done the same thing for so long and I'd, I'd identified as the role and really splitting the role versus my identity versus the vision of where I wanted to go and break making those into essentially three pieces and seeing does the role fit the identity of where I want to be in the grand vision of what I'm trying to achieve? And I think the reality was it wasn't serving that purpose anymore. It did for so long. And it was arguably one of the best experiences of my life, but it stopped serving that place. And to me, I believe part of being a leader is making space for others to have the experiences that somebody made a space for me. You know, there's a lot of people that had to step aside or to trust me to do something. And it was just my turn to do that for others. Um, and so it worked out in a, in a really positive way for the overall situation. But deconstructing the fact that I no longer was, you know, the, the leader of the company, that was, that was a crazy reality. I remember that day vividly when I left my 20-year career with the Franklin Covey organization to start my own business. Mm -hmm. It was a pivotal day that I will never forget. I can tell you, I was sitting here. 
I can tell you the weather. I can tell you what was going on outside because I, I had that. How will I know if I'm good? How will I introduce myself? Like just very weird, practical questions that were going through my head about shifting this, how much I had put my identity into. I was a top performer at Franklin Covey with the world's thought leaders traveling the world to, I don't know exactly who I am now. And that weird feeling that follows. So I, I feel for you and with you in this moment. Absolutely. And it, it, the funny thing about it is you don't realize how many times per week somebody asks you, what do you do? Uh, or what's your job? And it just is so instinctual before it was, you know, I had the pleasure of serving an organization, doing cool things, blah, blah. Like I had my little like 20 second spiel about what I did. And now I'm kind of like, well, you know, I teach, I consult, I, you know, who... And it, it's, and you see them just, their faces just kind of going dull and all right, you've, you've bored me. Uh, it's not as, it's not <laughs> as crystal clear. Internal as dialogue more than I think it's what they're thinking <laughs> because our uncertainty and insecurity just gets absolutely minded skyrocketed. I was like, okay, so I sold $35 million, but it, can I, am I still good just because I don't have that title? Like yeah. I, I had to, and it became the catalyst for the work I'm doing today, which is we should carry around our gifts and talents and then decide where do I go and use them to serve instead of identifying so closely with a particular role or company that we lose our sense of self. And what I love about you being such a well-known leader in our community here in Indianapolis is, you know, quitting has become kind of in vogue lately, right? We had has. a great resignation, we had quiet quitting, you know, whatever we want to call it these days. But what is different and inspiring about your story is you didn't leave because things were bad. And I want to really highlight and inspire people to say that sometimes we get called when things are really good. Mm -hmm. It's okay to step out and explore. So I think your story is so inspiring to lead the lives that we want to lead and not always responding to what somebody needs from us. I think it would have been easier if, if that were the case. Um, you know, looking at and I, obviously I have the delight of looking at things in hindsight. So I look at the last 12 months and really looking at, you know, I, I, the decision was made probably around 12 months ago. You know, we, Goodellnet on, on a whole has performed incredibly well uh, in the past 12 months. And that's been great. I mean, that's just been refreshing overall because you make promises, especially when you're leaving of that this is going to be better and to see the organization actually perform better is equal parts exciting, but then it's also, you've got the other side of things where, uh, you realize you're also replaceable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing too. And it's, it's liberating, uh, that you can be, but it's also a reminder when you're looking at creating your, you know, the life that you want. So many people I've spoken to is, well, it won't work without me. And I argue I was, I was an important part of the organization. I, 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 I'm, I'm a humble person, but not enough. But the realization is people move on. Uh, the organizations move on. You are replaceable. And that is, like I said, it's it's humbling to know that, to know that I think I have a legacy and I have a, there's my fingerprints are on a lot of stuff that still exists. And I'm really happy about that. But the organization has moved on. It's nimble. Um, and so taking those big leaps, not letting yourself feel like you're an anchor is such an important part of the journey, in my opinion. I love that. So now that you are creating versus responding. And what we know about you is 
you're an intense kind of guy. You don't just run, you run hundred mile races. You don't just win one year, you win 10 years. Like that is a part of your gifts, your, who you are. So when you take that intensity and turn it inward, that sounds really scary. What are, how are you letting this thing unfold? What, what's the guidance practice that you're using now? Cause I got to believe that you're a, I have certain ways that I do things kind of person. Yep. What's the practice for this for you to discover what's next or just explore what's there? What, how's it working? So I had, I, I, again, I, I knew foundationally of some ideas. I knew I had a calling and I, and, and I think that's really important to note is I had a calling to, to teach in some way. It was the obvious part of my job when I was CEO that I enjoyed the most. And we had a formal, you know, a leadership academy where I had an opportunity to teach there. We had formality around that. But for me, the parts of my day where I feel like I was sharing or inspiring or teaching were the parts of my day I loved the most. And that was obvious. And so I had an opportunity to become a professor at, at Butler University. And, and I've been doing that and absolutely adore the time that I get there. That, that's, that's been an easy part. And thankfully that has served to be a nice little baseline. That is my, that is my consistency that, that draws day to day is I have that. There's something on the calendar you've got to prepare for. Exactly. I have something <laughs> and, and, and that gets me up. And then the rest has been, and, and again, I really leaning heavily into, I'll call it community, but resources I have. Um, through my master's program, I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible people that have provided wisdom beyond free wisdom, frankly, just by, by connection that has been incredibly powerful for me of really mastering each part of my next steps and saying, how do I create a unique vision for each part of my life? And when I say that, I think my work life, my family life, my community life, my pursuit of wisdom, faith, et cetera. You look at each of these and think, what are my values around that? What's the vision that I want to lead to? And then how does it wrap itself into, you know, something that I can shuttle thousands of opportunities through and say, how does it fit this filter? There's and is it something to work forward to? And, and that filter was, took me six months to build. Uh, and it's still very much in process. I'm more socializing it now of saying, am I missing anything? Where you know is is this is this representative of me, uh, and using that filter to decide how do I decide what's the most appropriate next step? And so I've needed the help of others to really define what that looks like. I am constantly saying to clients, go to that place of what do you what are you good at that you love to do? Now let's let's take that because that's the core of who you are and build from that. And so teaching was that thing for you that you were then able to, to launch to the next thing with, with the university. I love that. We, I don't think we'll allow what we love to be enough of our career guidance. Yeah. And, and again, I, I, I have to say like, uh, again, I'm coming off of first day. So I'm, I've got like the, the first school day vibes uh, still kind of going through me, but I love the, uh, for why I love teaching is, there's a joy to me. It's again, you look at like flow state where the hour and a half or I, t I teach a three hour, three hour class as well. That, I mean, that goes by so unbelievably fast for me because I'm in this like just really focused state that I just really enjoy. But it's, 
it's that giving back in a way that's so powerful to me of sharing stories and failures and wins and the good side and the bad side. Cause the award, again, you mentioned the awards and I, I, I kind of cringe up a bit because I just know the other side of that is all the dumb things that I did and all the things that weren't great and, and, and whatever. So I always like, you know, it's something I probably need to work through is, is the other side. And I love that teaching requires me to share both of that, of the, the, this is how you should do it. And this is what I did the first time and how bad that was. And look at what I learned from it and trying to accelerate that maturity process for the individuals that have the opportunity to be in my class has just been so neat. Um, and it really, it makes me celebrate the really good times and the really bad times in a way that like, because when you're going through them, they feel hard and they feel overwhelming. Right. And then you reflect upon them and then you have to teach it to somebody. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I, this would be such a boring lecture if I didn't have this great failure story that is making this you know, textbook so much more compelling. And, and I'm so happy to be doing that. So it's, it's, it has been great to do something that you love that fits so beautifully with a vision of you know, investing truly in others. And the ability to share that authentic context to the textbook, to yes. be learning without context of some human authentic story is a really rough way to go. So you're able to provide that for, for them. So you mentioned it. So I'm going to go there. It's one of my favorite questions. What mistake are you really grateful for now that really sucked in the moment? Yeah, I, I would say I, I, I'm going to answer that in a probably a bigger mistake and i'll call it the aggregation of a lot of mistakes is uh the belief that i as a leader always had to be perfect um has forced me to in the past i would say make the wrong decision on things or to lose sight of the bigger picture on behalf of a fear of being seen as uh, not worthy of being in the role. And I look at a few moments or a few times, and I'm, I'm thankful for the people around me who've, who, as, as they got to know me better, checked me on those situations. But I would say kind of looking at the times where I wonder why did I make that decision? It was usually out of a fear of being truly vulnerable in the role that I was in. And I regret that. And I feel like I've learned from that of just understanding that part of leadership. And I, I caught it at the end uh, is being okay, being human and flawed and asking others for help. Um, and so I, I wish, I wish I would have known that more. And I look at like smaller things that I did that I wish I could go back and, and just kind of be the, the voice in my own head to say, think bigger than this. And, and I think, I feel like I would, I wish I could go back and do that. Wow, I love that so much. And I, I feel the cultural expectations that exist today are that people only want that authentic, I made a mistake, but here's how I'm fixing it kind of leader mm -hmm. is the 
aspiration to be perfect that nobody ever feels like they can live up to. And so I love that you shared that. I think that's a really important leadership lesson for everybody moving into the future of what leadership is going to require, which is very different than what it's required in the past. I think so. And I think finding that balance of understanding what vulnerability is and what vulnerabilities share, but also still being strong and still being purposeful and still being visionary and balancing those two is a skill set that, you know, I, I'm working on and coaching people through and, you know, thinking about how you do better uh, as a leader, because you, there is a higher degree of vulnerability and authenticity to your point that you need more and more, but also having that strength to make the hard decisions. I think 2023 is going to be, uh, and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, but I, I forgot what I, 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 the, the statement was by, by a few economists is from a CEO perspective is you have to do hard things without looking like an asshole. That's, that's what's going to be hard for a lot of leaders is, is doing the right things on behalf of the business. Uh, and so still being strong, but also kind of sharing in your journey along the way. I agree. And it's interesting. I coach both CEOs and people that report to CEOs or or, or other executives. And, and what's so fascinating when I hear people's stories is many CEO top leaders, presidents will say something similar to what you said, that I'm not sure how much vulnerability to, sh to share. Like there are times I'm really scared or there are times I'm unsure and I don't know how much of that to share. And, and they're, they paint this picture that might look a little too perfect. And then when I talk to people that report up to that level, they'll say, especially those that have left organizations, they'll say to me, I just wish they would have said, I made a mistake and here's how I'm fixing it. Yep. And I would have had so much more, that would have so much more credibility for me if they just would have admitted that mistake. And so there, there's the, there's the rub, right? People want it, but you're not sure how much to give because you want to appear strong. I think that's both art and science. There's no question, and I agree with that fully. And that's a that's a good story. It's I I wish that we could package it up and teach it together. We'd be gazillionaires serving everyone all over the <laughs> world. If you need a if you figure that out, and need a partner. I'm available to. You're the person. All yeah, right. Well, I'll be that. <laughs> I think I think what I've what I've I've had the opportunity to do both in my journey, but then obviously talking to so many others is we're all figuring it out. And I think that's that has been the most liberating factor in all of this is I have a very good community of people in similar roles, uh, and we're all figuring it out. We're all flawed. We're like the this the companies with the perfect stories aren't actually perfect, and the companies with the flawed stories are actually just doing the best that they can as well. And we're all just kind of in it trying to do. I don't know many, many people who don't love their employees and aren't working in the best interests of them. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't manifest itself in the right decision-making processes, but everyone does care and we're all trying to figure it out together. And that's, that has been the best part of the journey uh, is, uh, is really sharing that with others. Is not only being vulnerable to, to your team, but being vulnerable to other people in similar roles is uh, you learn so much more that way. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So one of the things that I'm, believing and seeing and reading about that's going to be so important moving into the future of leadership is the ability to create a safe environment for your team, psychological safety, where mm -hmm. they can really show up and be themselves and make mistakes and bring ideas and that you're really collaborating as humans. 
What are some of the things you've obviously been able to do that or you wouldn't have had the success that you have had? What are some of the things that you feel like you've done that create that kind of psychological safe environment for people to work in? Yeah, I think I think the first thing does have to come from, I think, the way that I show up to work as as a leader. I think um, you don't realize that you are on stage all the time as as a leader. And I think understanding that part of it. So I remember at some points during, you know, obviously coming off of the last two and a half years with COVID, sharing my stories about, you know, my fears with COVID and what I'm going through from a family perspective and sharing um, circumstances that were happening to my kind of greater family um, and how that was affecting me in terms of how I was showing up at work. And I think sharing some of those stories with others provided space for people to share their stories and to realize that there's more depth in the CEO. And as a result, there's more depth in our executive team and they shared their stories. Um, and I think, I think that was a, an incredibly important starting point. I think for us is celebrating the right things. Um, you know, for us, it's, you know, you can celebrate the times where people are perfect or you can celebrate the times that people are honest and talk about that in as just with as equal amounts of enthusiasm as you are about something that's a little bit more concrete and celebrating those that spoke up and sharing, uh, hey, this was an opportunity that we thought we made the right decision, but this individual or these individuals spoke up and here's how we're going to pivot as a result of that. And really sharing in the fact that ideas are brought up and it's communicated back that this was a submitted idea from an employee and we're going to give that back to them. I think taking ideas seriously has to be important as well. Um, we always try to reiterate, if somebody was asking for Skittles in the break room, that needs to be treated with the just the same level of urgency as we need to redefine the way that we do you know, performance management, as an example, where uh, because the person who asked for the Skittles may also have this other business-changing idea that they're watching you to make sure that you actually listen. So giving space to have people provide their input um, and giving forums and different communication vehicles by which to do that. Some people love to share personally. I think with a remote or hybrid environment, you've got to get a little more creative in terms of how you bring on that feedback um, to allow it to be centralized, um, allow it to be reshared to say, hey, this is the themes that we're hearing from the teams. This is the themes that we're going to be taking action on. These are things that we're hearing that we're not taking an action on. Either it's delayed or we're going to be pushing it off for a few quarters, or this is why you know, we choose to continue to move forward because not every idea is good. I always share during our state of the company addresses, a few of the ideas that I came up with that the executive team completely nixed and said, I am the CEO of the company and even I have terrible ideas. So not every idea is always a good idea. And letting people have that space and seeing me just acknowledge that because if you don't, then people start to feel like their voice isn't heard or they don't feel safe speaking up. And if they don't feel safe speaking up, you're missing out on some really good ideas. Because at the end of the day, there's 200 and some people in the company. That's 200 great ideas. If you, the one CEO of the organization, are expected to come up with more ideas than 200 people, that seems absurd to me. Mm, I love that. I, when you said the Skittles example, I thought of the the writer for the rock star that submits the, you know, here's my list of things that I want you to have in the green room. And so oh, yes crazy requests are made just to see if somebody's actually reading it and paying attention. It's mm -hmm. much what you just shared. It's, 
I'm going to ask for Skittles to see if they're listening. And if they really are listening, then I might share a little bit more depth of what I really am thinking or caring about. People don't just walk into your office and dump their innermost ideas or secrets or challenges. They're, they're testing the waters to see if it's a safe place with some smaller conversations. And then do you earn the right to get to the depths of what they really care about? That's well said. Absolutely. And I think it does, it does escalate. And I think giving the space for people to have that conversation, I think is absolutely paramount and opportunistic as well. Like I said, there's so many great ideas out there and kind of harnessing the power of, of the many is, is critically important. Okay. So here's a question that I ask all of my clients as we're helping them identify their unique gifts and talents and going back to the early days of who they are and making sure that we can see that thread of who they are following through their their careers and their lives. So what was 14-year-old Nick doing for fun? Because 14 years old is when you start to have some autonomy. You don't have to ride with mom and dad to the hardware store and you get to choose more of your friends and the things you're doing, even if you're alone in your room, what, whatever, you're choosing more for you. So mm -hmm. what were the things that Nick was up to at 14 that you were really enjoying. That's great. I, uh, it's funny. It kind of makes me smile because I'm trying to laugh. So it's freshman year of, of high school at this point. Um, I was an athlete. I loved, uh, I was a soccer player. I swam. I had not gotten into running yet. Actually, in fact, I, I hated running. So that you couldn't have forecasted my, my hobby 26 years later in terms of what I was doing at the age of 14. I had an incredibly strong uh, and diverse group of friends. I didn't know, I, I didn't fit in any particular like genre. I feel like you, you get the kind of the cliche high school stories where the cool people, I was definitely not a cool person. I don't think I was a nerd. I think I was kind of just the guy that was sort of friends with everyone and I was hyper curious about everything. So I was actually in choir. Uh, so I sang because I thought that was, I liked music at the time and that was the only I would say instrument that I was capable of utilizing at the time. I loved school. I was very curious at school. I uh, thought I wanted to be in politics at the time. So at 14, I actually went to Washington, D.C., got a chance to do this just little national program where they kind of take a bunch of kids that want to be part of you know Congress at some point. And so I remember doing that because uh, I knew I wanted to give back and I loved the idea of public service. Uh, and I think I never went back after that. I think that was, that was the beginning of the end of my political career at the age of 14. Uh, it came and went quick. What was it about it that stopped you from that pursuit? I think the reality of my personality, which is the thought of being hated by, you know, let's say 49% of my constitu constituency, uh, that's a hard word to say, um, felt overwhelming. And there's certain people that could let that rub off their back and I am not that person. So I, uh, I care too much about creating consensus that I would never get anything actually done. So that was, I that love, was not my jam. I love the self-awareness though. That's, that's the key. <laughs> so, so I love to dig in a little bit. Let's just go to, go to the soccer. What did you love about soccer? So I, I am not a gifted, like natural athlete. Like if you, you know, there's certain kids when they're five, you throw a ball at them, they catch it, they chuck it back. Like they throw, like you threw a ball at me at five, it hit me in the face. I'd have to go like running after it. What I liked about soccer is it allowed me to play with these individuals because I hustled. Uh, I had to hustle and work harder than everybody else on the team who had actual skills. Um, 
And I loved that. I loved the community of it. These were individuals that I'd grown up with since the age of five. We've been playing soccer together since we were five, many of whom are still good friends of mine. So I, I loved the team community aspect of it. And I knew I needed that. Uh, so it was fun. I, I played uh, up until senior year of high school. Um, and then I, I did leave. I think it, at some point, hustle can't overcome <laughs> lack of actual skill at some point. But uh, I loved the outdoors. I loved moving. I loved hard things. And soccer is a perfect way to do all of those things all at once. Okay, so the juxtaposition of swimming is swimming is a very individual sport versus soccer, very team-oriented. What did you love about swimming? Um, I liked that there was a perfect like correlation between effort placed in practice and nutrition and strength training to performance in the pool um, versus, to your point, team, where I was beholden to how everyone else is playing and who we're playing against and you know, I love the perfection of I'm going to swim this race in two minutes. And then if I do this, this, and that, and I try this, it's going to be a minute 55. It's very measurable. It's very self-accountable. Uh, and I liked that. And all of a sudden, I think I realized by the latter part of high school that I liked individual sports as part of a team. So I liked still some of the team aspects, but the reality is I liked going to my dark place of working hard and getting to that, like just really painful spot that you get into endurance sports, uh, alone. And I liked that part of it, but that I loved testing things and seeing if it made a big difference on time versus soccer. It just wasn't as immediate in terms of, is this working or not? So let me tie everything you just said into what I think I know about you from what I've heard and people that know you that has made you a fantastic leader. So people who love soccer like that idea of I've got to respond to what's coming at me, but I love the team aspect of it. I love that we're working together and I'm serving in some way. And there's variations of it, but soccer is is specifically a sport that when people love that, they love that I've got to respond and I don't always know what's coming next, right? No doubt. Swimming, very much what you said, your intensity to cause and effect you later became known for building the most amazing systems and processes inside an organization that created more reliability for the business. Is that fair from what I've heard about your leadership style? Yeah. So, so this unique combination, and then you add the music. Anytime somebody has this love of music, there's this connection to humanity in a very soulful sort of way because it touches us in that way. So if I take those combination of just those three things that you shared, it seems like a natural way that you took those things about you and created this leadership style that said, look, we're going to go hard at this thing. We're not just going to win one time. We're going to win 10 times. And we're going to do it because we're going to know cause and effect in the systems and the processes. But we're always going to be able to respond to each other and be serving and, and how can we help one another. And I, I just always think it's fascinating that 14-year-old you already knew what kind of a leader that you were going to be. I think you like skip to like day 20 of a therapy session in a single uh, podcast of figuring, figuring me out a bit. That's, that's actually a really astute way to look at it. Um, and I will say sometimes it feels like sometimes if you look at those as a, as a triangle, sometimes the triangle is biased. You know, it's not a perfect equilateral triangle that I feel like sometimes we care too much about the people and forgot about the systems. And we did too much systems and metrics and forgot about the, you know, 
And so, but I like that tension of the three of those things and how if if perfectly working together, they do build what I would, you know, hope was was a decent leadership experience. You set up perfectly the framework that I use, which is called business is human, which is the business needs are to control, measure, and optimize. Our human needs are personal, emotional, and social. When you know as a leader how to bring those two together so that you can add value, be relevant, and make an impact, that's the snizzle. That's where, yeah. we're, that's where we're all trying to get to as leaders. Yeah. And the cool thing is you, there's no, I have not met anybody who does that perfectly. So it's always a journey to get there. And that's the coolest part about it. I think in, in my opinion, leadership is you're always getting, trying to get better at it because you're, you're never feeling like you're perfectly nailing it. Well, I am excited to see where your journey takes you. And I hope that you'll come back and report in on how things are going and what you're learning about yourself and what what you're up to. I, I'm I'm really excited for you to go on this internally guided journey that you've allowed yourself to go on. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for uh, again, even just kind of helping me understand where I'm coming from. I learned <laughs> I learned something from this, and so I uh, appreciate the time very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I would love it if you would leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and then go to wethrive.live. First thing you'll see is a place to drop your email and join the movement. I'll send you tools that you can use to thrive in life and business. I'm not coming down. Hey y'all, fun fact. If you like the music for the podcast, that is actually my son, Cameron Hessian. And I would love it if you would go to Spotify and iTunes and follow him and download some of his other music. My personal favorite is TV Land. <laughs> <laughs>